Buenos dias, compañeros. Welcome to Slide, the Avalanche podcast. This is episode 13 coming to you from the high and dry interior, and I am in a wee bit of climate shock. I miss the maritime cycles when a foot of new was mildly disappointing. But I revel in the continental sunshine and use the good weather as an exploratory motivator. Often at this time of year, my soul is chained to an A-star. That's a fair thing to chain one's soul to for a bit, but Herman, I'm calling my soul Herman, could not be more pleased to be off the chain and able to wander hither and yon at his soul pleasure. Pun intended. Excellence does not require a helicopter. Last episode, we dove into debiasing strategies, things we can do to foil our brain traps or even use them to our advantage. Strategies to enhance judgment can be applied at a personal or a systemic level, and we have so far just scratched the top sheet. Our dive into debiasing didn't get much past the springboard because it made sense to start at the beginning. Things we can do to enhance decision-making before we even need to. How do we set ourselves up for success from the start? Uncle Jesse used to sit in the rocking chair and croak, Don't just do something. Stand there. He cackled at the feeble witticism and prodded the sleeping dog for a scent. Not every decision needs to be made. Not every decision should be made. Sometimes it's better to let the dog sleep. That was our first lesson. From there, we covered education, mindset, planning, and protocol. Education and training are the process of telling and playing out stories that may come to pass. Mindset primes our decider to judge within the bounds of a predetermined context. Planning? Well, yeah, but structured planning that reviews ongoing concerns in a systematic and repeatable process. And protocol? Simple decision rules that also provide structure to our ruminations. All of that stuff sets us up for making better decisions. But now we're skinning up or on short final or puzzling over the Swiss cheese of mitigation work or getting ready to drop in. How do we snap the brain traps before evolution has its way with us? We pause to reassess. Debiasing requires motivation to make better decisions and a knowledge of bias, but that's usually where we're left hanging. It also requires effort. Yeah doesn't just happen automatically because we read some smart stuff. Debiasing is something you have to do and practice and synthesize with that special spacing out time when we're supposed to be reassessing. Debiasing is part of our pause. Begin reassessment with a review of goals and priorities. That will check any mission creep that is seeping into our automatic decision-making process. If your status doesn't reflect your goals, you have to ask how you got there. Where do you think you are going? And what happened to your goal, man? I am an advocate of skepticism. My skeptical look permanently creased my face. Perhaps it's because I'm from Vermont, or maybe it's because I've witnessed enough half-assery that I've grown to anticipate it. Skepticism is applied to our beliefs. What is fact, and what is assumption? 
Can we tell the difference? The storm snow has settled and is no longer likely to produce large avalanches. That assertion is ripe with ramifications. Positively ripificacious. And high-consequence beliefs merit scrutiny. That's where we begin active debiasing. In addition to belief, we should be skeptical of our own competence to make a decision. This is not just a matter of the Dunning-Kruger effect and the limits of our knowledge. It is recognition that emotional and physical states can hijack our decision-making. Never go to the grocery store on an empty stomach. The average American consumes 16 pounds of potato chips per year, and I'm probably closer to 20, maybe 25. I love potato chips. Hopefully all this skepticism does not turn us into a quivering heap of uncertainty, because that would be a real problem. Paralysis by skepticism can be a sign that one does not have all the ingredients required to make a decision, or that one is hopelessly unwilling to commit. In the latter instance, perhaps curling would be a more appropriate activity than backcountry skiing. A wise man once said, If you ain't got options, you ain't got shit. What I meant by that is that options and alternatives are critical to the decision-making process. Yet we humans are ever prone to slipping into default mode. For a species so prone to telling stories... We sure like slipping into the old familiar ones. Debiasing includes purposefully considering options to which you may not have been initially inclined. Because even if you think it's so, maybe it ain't. So we pause to reassess. The counterfactual and the vanishing option techniques highlight less obvious alternatives. Counterfactual tactics seek to discredit a good story. They require a search for evidence that contradicts a favored course of action. Argue from the other side. If we decide a slope is safe, let's pretend that it rips out and then try to figure out how that happened. That's a pre-mortem counterfactual. A boom it's an examination of what could possibly go wrong, and how might we get there. It's a search for evidence that indicates failure instead of success. Nothing highlights weak assumptions like a hearty shot of pre-mortem with some sriracha. The vanishing option test eliminates a preferred course of action. Nope, you can't do that. Your plan is off the table. What else you got? Generate alternatives. Debiasing separates evidence from assumption. This is an opportunity to reassess uncertainty, to identify what we know, what we believe, and what remains a mystery. Where is your story weak? Is the uncertainty acceptable? Another groundbreaking idea you're probably not alone. Talk it out with your partner. Humans are exceptionally good at poking holes in others' stories, while we are exceptionally bad at finding fault with our own. Wonder Twin Powers, activate. So there you go. 
Pause and review your goals and priorities. Engage skepticism. Generate options. Have another gander at uncertainty and chuck your partner a whiskey tango foxtrot. Our reassessment interlude is an opportunity for debiasing. Poncho and Lefty are cruising up through a thick forest of evergreens and they pop out on a ridge at treeline. The last storm is three days past and the kiddos are getting after it. Avalanche activity has tapered. Our protagonists head for a big bowl that will no doubt be awesome, and when they get a peek, it indeed looks spectacular. As they rip skins, Poncho and Lefty pause to reassess. The goal is to ski powder, not this particular terrain feature. What could possibly go wrong? Poncho sighs. Man, this is way better than that desert in Mexico. Lefty comments on the wind. It's stronger than they thought, and it's moving snow into the bowl. The loading rate doesn't fit very well with their belief that the bowl has had time to settle. Poncho imagines skiing into a fresh pocket of wind slab near the ridge. It fails and entrains a wider swath of snow below. His imaginary avalanche enters the constriction at the bottom of the path. Maybe he's in it. Huh. What else we got up here? He wonders aloud. There's that couloir on the other side of the next knoll, offers Lefty. Maybe we should check that out and see if it's loading the same way. That's it, man. Poncho and Lefty had an obvious clue, the wind, but they didn't take their plan for granted and just roll with it. They stopped and considered what they really wanted from the day and what could go wrong, and what their options were. Poncho and Lefty altered course and hit the couloir. That's all debiasing really is. Instead of running on autopilot or clinging to belief, you do a brain check, get in the driver's seat and poke around a little, then decide if you want to hold your heading or veer in another direction. Piece of pie. All you gotta do is man the wheel and Mind your way. It's a glorious bluebird powder day. 50 centimeters of new, nothing's been moving. Skiing great and holding tight with just some light sloughing on the steep northerlies. Jimmy stands on a ridge and watches the entire bowl in front of him rip and engulf his four compadres. One was skiing and three were posted up mid-path in a small island of trees. The crown is a meter thick, close to the ridge, and then tapers to 50 centimeters on the flanks, 150 meters wide. This is a metric story. The avalanche generates a massive, hypnotizing powder cloud as it channels into the constriction at the bottom of the bowl. The shockwave blasts the pow from the trees and bends them over. Some snap with a sickening crack, and the debris flow churns down the lower gully. Jimmy stares, breathless, and slowly loses his shit. There's no one to scream to. 
His friends are gone. He is alone on the ridge, in the sunshine, as the powder cloud disperses below. Jimmy screams at the wind. Maybe that helps. He reaches under his coat and frees his beacon from the harness and switches to search. Nothing. He takes a few deep breaths and looks around. The bowl is gone. The avalanche danger is suddenly low. Four. Missing. Jimmy scans the track. He notes the island of trees they had called good, where his buddies were posted up. He notes the spot a little higher up where Bobby was skiing when the whole thing ripped. Bobby is gone. Jimmy drops into a signal search and arcs towards where Bobby was skiing only a moment ago. He starts zigzagging across the bed surface. When he kick turns at the edge of the track, he sights 40 meters down the other flank and scans while he cuts to the far side. His beacon is up by his head, so he can hear a faint signal and he doesn't get distracted by staring at the screen. 200 meters down, the beacon chirps and Jimmy stops. He breathes and looks around. He looks at the beacon and drops into a coarse search with righteous purpose. In a moment, Jimmy closes the range from 30 to 10, and he pauses again and looks around and listens. And it's quiet, save the beacon chirping a lone signal. Jimmy closes to three, only one signal. He looks around, slows down, and gets low with his beacon, trying to close the remaining distance. At point two, he freaks out a little bit. He pops off his skis and whips off his pack. He rips open the tool pocket, stares for a blink at the probe and shovel, and grabs the shovel. Jimmy throws the handle on the blade and plunges it into the snow, and his third swipe elicits a cry of pain, anger, and fear. A swatch of human is visible, and Jimmy flies to expose the head and chest of good brother Wallace. Wallace is freaking out. Jimmy keeps it together. Wallace claims he's not hurt, and Jimmy frees him to the waist and shouts, Wally, dig yourself out. Turn your beacon off. Then come help me. Wally nods and struggles to remove his pack. Jimmy silences the furious pinging of his beacon with a marking function, and then nothing. He resumes his zigzag signal search pattern. It is quiet, except for the sound of Wally shoveling and the buffeting of Jimmy's skis over the debris, and the static background noise from the beacon. The beacon chirps. He exhales deeply and follows it in. A different chirp. A second signal. Jimmy closes the search to ten. He pauses and hears at least two signals, maybe a third. Three friends. Jimmy's beacon closes to the strongest signal, four, 3.7, 3.2, He tries to bracket the signal in a fine search, but can't get below 3.2. Jimmy's probe is three meters long. He can't hit 3.2. Even with Wally's help, it would take them at least 20 minutes to dig so deep. Jimmy presses his eyes closed and he puts a hand on his head and sags for a moment. He can feel his heartbeat. He sticks a pole in the snow, marks the signal, and moves towards the next. 
something is wrong. He can't lock on the next signal. This is not working, and two friends are still missing. Three under the snow. Jimmy curses. This requires an alternative strategy. He swaps his beacon to analog mode and clamors upslope until the display reads 10. He can hear one stronger signal and two weaker. Last December, Jimmy and Sam learned how to use micro search strips. So Jimmy starts moving right, and when the display goes below 10, he drops fall line three meters, then starts moving left, 9.7, 8.3, 5.2. He's heading straight for his pole. He's on the same signal as before and brushes past the pole where the signal bottoms out at 3.5. At 10, Jimmy drops fall line another three meters and moves right. The distance indicator starts dropping. He's on the next signal. 6.4, 5.3, Jimmy starts bracketing the signal in a fine search. He gets down to 1.5, whips out his probe, and gets a strike immediately. Wally comes careening down the slope, out of breath and looking a righteous mess, but his eyes are clear and his voice is strong. How can I help? Give me your probe. Dig here, Jimmy commands. Jimmy grabs the fresh probe and resumes his microstrips where he left off. He's got the last signal. He's closing fast, and Jesus, there's a glove in the snow. Jimmy snaps to it, and his beacon signal goes through the roof. He tries to snatch the glove from the snow, and it slips through his hand. He grabs it firmly, and the glove grabs back. Jimmy gasps and falls over backwards. He starts frantically scraping at the snow around the hand, then remembers his shovel. He extricates an arm and a shoulder and a head. Manny! It's Manny! Manfred is crying. A few tears fall inside Jimmy's goggles and he can't see for a moment. He shakes his head and digs out Manny's shoulder and chest. Manny! Are you hurt? He cups Manny's face in his hands and looks him in the eye. I don't think so, Manny stammers. Jimmy wrestles Manny's shovel from his pack and hands it to him. Try to dig yourself out. I'll be back. Jimmy scrambles back up the hill to Wallace. It's Bobby. They got Bobby. His whole upper body is exposed now. He's cradling a disfigured arm with some blood on it. I got Manny, says Jimmy. Wally looks around. Where's Sam? Jimmy drops to his knees and points to the ski pole. And it begins to snow. They dig Robert out. His jacket is soaked with blood below his right shoulder. Manfred comes to help. Where is Sam? He asks. Bobby's hurt, Jimmy replies. They try to gently remove Bobby's jacket and he screams. They cut around the arm of the jacket and try to slide it off his wrist, but it snags on something bloody. And Bobby screams again. Jagged stems of bone protrude from his upper arm. Manny turns and vomits in the snow. Where's Sam? asks Bobby. Jimmy commands Wally and Manny to splint Bobby's arm and see if they can stop the bleeding. He scuttles down to the ski pole below and falls onto the debris. He still can't get below 3.2 on the beacon. Jimmy grabs the pole and sticks it in the snow about a meter and a half above him. He moves up and starts digging. The boys splint and bandage Bobby as best they can. He's still bleeding. He is not moving very well. Manny vomits 
again. Miraculously, they all still have all of their ski gear. Wally slides down and starts to dig, sweeping away the blocks of snow that Jimmy is cutting and pulling. After a moment, Jimmy stops. He looks at Bobby. Bobby is sitting on the snow, shivering a bit. He's cradling his slung arm and clenching his teeth. He looks at Manny, who does not look well. How you doing, Manny? I'm okay. You do not look okay. Are you going to puke again? Maybe. I don't feel very good. Bobby, can you ski? I think so, Bobby says with forced confidence. Jimmy looks at Wally. You gotta go. You three have to go now. We're not leaving you. We're not leaving Sam. You have to go, commands Jimmy. Bobby and Manny are in trouble. Get help. They argue for a bit. Robert and Manfred are silent. Wallace pauses and looks at them. He swears and stands. Get your skis on, he says. We have to go. They gear up and start moving out. Jimmy resumes digging, silently, methodically. Wally slides over and grabs his arm. We'll be back. Then his friends are gone. Except for Sammy. At a meter down, Jimmy tries to bracket the signal again, and he gets it down to 2.3. He looks around frantically and sees a probe in the snow where Manny had been. He grabs the probe and starts methodically probing on a 25-centimeter grid. Hit. Sammy. Jimmy backs off the probe and starts digging frantically towards it. It's hard. Progress is slow. He grows wet. His hands get cold. They slip from the shovel, and he stumbles. The wind picks up, and the sky darkens, and despair creeps in. Jimmy catches a flash of movement in the distance as two skiers emerge from the blowing snow. They shout to each other and fly to Jimmy. The strangers are upon him in a moment. They pop out of their skis and drop into the hole. One puts a hand on Jimmy's shoulder. He lifts his goggles and reveals a pair of clear, penetrating eyes nestled in crinkling crow's feet and a deep beard. His voice is calm and encouraging, like he's telling a child that everything will be okay. My name's John. This is Doug. We're here to help you. Jimmy's jaw begins to quiver and the tears again fall inside his goggles. Thank you, he stammers. Why don't you tell me what happened, says John. What's your name? Jimmy looks over his shoulder where Doug is already on his knees with a beacon in one hand and a shovel in the other. Other rescuers burst from the clouds. Some go rocketing past and some stay to help. The rescuers locate Wally and Manny and Bobby. They get them out and take them to the hospital. Bobby has an open upper arm fracture and Manny is bleeding into his abdomen. But they're going to be okay. They will get to go home. The small group in a now dark and snowy place finds Sammy. 
but Sammy does not get to go home. Hours later, a ski patroller drops Jimmy off at his house. It's dark and it's cold and he's very tired. It's still snowing. Tomorrow's going to be a powder day. Jimmy crawls into bed, still in his cortex, and he wets the pillow, quietly sobbing for Sammy. This is not a true story. I made it up. Or maybe it's true and I never heard it. Or maybe it will be true someday. I hope not. If you found the story confusing, welcome to the wonderful world of avalanche rescue. If you have not trained for a scenario like this, you will probably fail. The story illustrates the algorithmic nature of avalanche rescue with practice. It is something you can learn to do right. You can practice to a near mastery level. Jimmy did just about everything right. He executed a near-perfect search. He used the marking feature on his beacon until it failed. Then he successfully employed an alternative search strategy. He triaged a deep burial and prepped for a return to the site. He maximized the utility of his available resources. He discovered and diverted to a prominent clue. He integrated medical and rescue priorities into his mental model. He properly executed a deep burial strategy, but it was not enough. Sometimes it is not enough. Jimmy nailed it. Sammy would be proud. They practiced rescue every season because Jimmy and Sammy knew that their judgment would always be suspect. But rescue was a skill they could master. And that was something. It was a big something for Manfred and Robert and Wallace. Sam would be proud, sad, and frustrated but proud. Yep, that's it. Cheers, y'all. Next episode, we'll try to wrap this de-biasing hocus-pocus with a look at systemic de-biasing strategies. That's good matzah. Hopefully, wherever I'm at gets a righteous pounding so I can spin a yarn of risk management and crushing it. If not, maybe we'll pull one from the holy crap file. Inevitably, the music is by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. Emotional support provided by the Avalanche Review, the Silverton Avalanche School, DPS Skis, and many of you. Thank you. Pray for snow.